Hey, uh, hello again uh, to a second part of episode two, I guess, not second part. That would mean that there are two parts to some kind of logical whole. <clears throat> but perhaps the second part, uh, no, please, part two of Mark's movie collection. Hello again, I am Mark D, IT guy, dad, and uh, generally bad movie nerd. What I'm going to watch for this episode, which I should actually select what I'm going to watch that I can tell you at the end of the previous episode. Um, I'm actually going to continue with the HD DVD collection that I have. I have a small one. And a lot of that I picked up from a good friend of mine named Jose, along with an HD DVD player. Although I do have the HD DVD drive from uh, for my Xbox 360. I'm currently not using that. It's just a bit too much like baggage for... Uh, my space constraints right now and stuff like that. What was I going with this? Right. Uh, today I'm watching The Frighteners. And this is notoriously filmed in New Zealand and directed by Peter Jackson. This is a movie starring Michael J. Fox. And this is my favorite Peter Jackson movie by far. And um, I guess to give you some history with me and Peter Jackson, I don't like him. Because I love Lord of, the, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings is one of my favorite things as far as books go. And the changes, the, the undertaking of bringing the books to life was wonderful, significant, and amazing. But the changes made were maybe not the changes that I would have preferred. And in retrospect, this is a lot like the controversy of The Last Jedi. And I see that now. And I'm not like, I'm not super salty about it. But... I'm also not super happy with it, um, but I mean, he is free to make the changes that he made, regardless uh, of what I might think. The special effects were amazing, wonderful. Sorry, I burped there. I, I'm, I'm always drinking soda and and being gassy when I have to speak. It's really not. It's really not ideal. And my uh, my DVD player, just HD DVD player, just went on to screensaver right now. It was on the menu for a little while. Um, but I am about to watch this movie. I've seen it before. I think the first time I saw it, I, I must have rented it from Blockbuster, uh, my sister and I, my older sister and I. And we saw it and we're both like, hey, this movie kicks ass. This movie's awesome. So it's one of those things where I'm going to watch it again. I, I probably saw it maybe five, six years ago, maybe. Um, so I'm going to see how it goes. But, uh, yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen it yet. So if you want, just you know, insert tape sound here. VHS tape sound, I guess. Uh, maybe I'll record my DVD drive going in because it does make a sound. I don't know. So I watched The Frighteners. I watched Peter Jackson's The Frighteners, and I like this movie, and I have liked this movie historically, and I will continue to like this movie. This movie has a lot going for it. has a lot going on. Um, I mean... Wow. So, I guess, where to start off, this is the director's cut and has 14 additional minutes. I feel like a lot of those 14 minutes are exposition minutes. And I say exposition because this movie does give you exposition in a very exposition-y way. However, that is okay. That's fine. That is acceptable. Because they do a good job of it, and I'm okay with that. So, 
with that exposition, you know, it is what it is. But I'm also very impressed. This movie came out in 1996. It was made in 1995. And it was a really big undertaking in terms of CG. Uh, I think in the director's cut forward, Peter Jackson says there are something along the lines of 500 CG shots. That is an insane amount of CG shots. That is a crazy amount of CG shots. So good on him. Bully on him. Uh, And they also show a nice huge stack of SGI indie computers. And if there is something that you may not know about me that you may want to know, it is that I am a retro computing enthusiast and have always wanted an SGI. I've never had the, um, I guess, financial inclination nor the spatial inclination in that I I really, I don't even have anywhere that I could keep this thing ultimately because, you know, things take up space. That's just how the world works. So there's that. But it was interesting how uh, Lord of the Rings came out of this um, swollen infrastructure from Weta. They essentially had to spin up a bunch of computers uh, or purchase, ship, acquire, install, set up a bunch of computers to render out um, Frighteners, only to have them idle. And Peter Jackson's like, hey, I need to work on something real quick, because if not, these things are going to kill us. So the work for Lord of the Rings started out right from here. So right off the bat, I mean, kind of keeping on the same things, some of the graphics look really dated, like anything where the phantasm comes out of the wall or the floor looks really bad. It looks really, really bad, uh, really dated. However, um, when you see... Michael J. Fox's character, Frank's, when you see Frank's, like, ghost buddies, they look pretty damn good. Like, wow. And uh, that was really just, like, a compositing kind of deal. And I, I, I looked in the, the making of a little bit, and the making of on the director's cut is serious. If you are a fan of making ofs, this making of is pretty serious. Peter Jackson is a serious guy when it comes to making ofs, and I respect him for that. I may not... And I... I'm trying not to like him. I'm trying to keep this picture in my mind of Peter Jackson, whom I hate, but it's hard because he seems like a pretty cool, pretty all right guy. So it's one of those things where your projection, your thought of what the situation or the person would be is not really um, matching up with the reality of it. So... I was going with the ghosts and all this stuff. Oh, that was just compositing. That was just them on a blue screen and makeup and then pop them into a scene. And I mean, I say just compositing, but it was really good compositing. They, they did all the blue screen stuff uh, with good lighting and, and real professionals, ultimately. And I don't think you can ask for more than that. So, you know, there's, um, I guess we'll we'll get into the... I don't necessarily want to go scene by scene through the movie. Um, but I will say that there are, you know, I will start at the top, I guess, where there is a tense chase scene through an old house where a woman is legitimately running away from the phantasm in the wall that is trying to kill her. 
and that's okay, I guess. Um, I mean, it's pretty tense because, you know, the wall is, is actually, like, coming after her. And her mom is like, ah, get out. Ah, right? I think that's how that scene ends. I actually don't remember. I know that she doesn't die. Um, but her name is Patty, and that is who she is. Uh, then they go over to some typesetting scenes on a sweet Macintosh. I'm sure it was um, Adobe InDesign or something like that. But it's a, a reporter at a newspaper who you will see exactly once more in the movie. And it's interesting that New Zealand was used as a stand-in for the U.S. And Peter Jackson talks about that a tiny bit in the making of, as re with regards to, uh, you know, shooting the script over to Zemeckis and kind of seeing how that goes. And they were concerned that, you know, could New Zealand be a stand-in for the U.S.? And obviously not, like, no, not in any way, but the fact that the territory, the terrain, the structures are ever so slightly different, like, kind of puts you in this weird place where you really can't peg this thing down. Like, nobody has a cell phone. Nobody's really driving a car of the year. There's nothing that dates the movie at all. And even less so the architecture or the landmarks because it's not in the U.S. So that was a real cool touch, even though it may not have necessarily been intentional. It could have been economic or whatever the case was, but they flew over, you know, a ton of American actors because almost everybody in the movie is American. And there are some good uh, actors in the movie that I would like to talk about at some point. Uh, but maybe not just yet. I think going back to the New Zealand architecture, it's like, what if it was fucking Lovecraftian New England, but even weirder? And that's kind of the vibe that you get. Like this hilly, weird, dark, wet Lovecraftian England. But there's no Lovecraftian monsters. Just ghosts. Uh, so, Michael J. Fox plays uh, Frank Bannister, who's this kind of uh, psychic con man, I guess is the main pitch to the movie, where um, he has ghost buddies. He is a psychic or a medium, or I think medium might be the better way to characterize that. So, medium, I guess, is the way to characterize this guy. And... Um, he essentially runs a racket where he sends his ghost to haunt somebody and tries to pick up that money, you know? He's falling apart. The guy's a maniac on the street. Like, it's insane. It is reckless. It is dangerous. It is uh, boosted beyond all belief. This is a man who has no respect for human life on the road, um, which is telling because... We find out that his wife was killed in an automobile accident and he was driving and he was ostensibly drunk. So I always kind of got the idea that uh, he was a drunk, but then like maybe they pulled that from the movie and I didn't watch enough of the making of to really get into that, but I don't know that they're going to say it. I, I get the feeling that if that was the case, that it was something like Michael J. Fox didn't want to play a drunk because he's Michael J. Fox and... I don't necessarily blame him, nor do I think that the movie is any better or worse with this change. Um, 
I think it just is what it is. I was just trying to make sense of this character who is such a maniac who lives in uh, an unfinished house and is just insanely poorly kept and just a weird loser of a person who is actually like going to funerals to hand out cards and they blow him up in the newspaper that's how bad he is he's a really charismatic loser though he's still michael j fox you can't help but feel drawn to him and that's one of those things where it's like yeah he michael j fox uh trini alvarado plays uh dr lucy linsky and she always reminded me of Andy McDowell in this movie. Uh, but it turns out that she's um, Spanish and Puerto Rican. So not necessarily the same lineage. But, um, you know, very fair skin, dark hair, blue eyes. You know, wonderful look to her. And uh, she's a doctor here in wherever the fuck they are, USA. <clears throat> And they kind of go on that a little bit. She goes to see uh, Patty, uh, who Patty is played by D. D. Wallace? D. Wallace. D. Wallace. I don't, I don't know if that says D. Wallace or not. Actually. Uh, yes, actually. D. Wallace? D. Wallace? D. Wallace? D. Wallace? D. Wallace, yes. She's played by D. Wallace. So, D. Wallace is Patricia Ann Bradley. And the cool thing about D. Wallace is that D. Wallace actually has a long and storied career in a million and one things. She works, um, but she's been in a lot of horror movies. And I say she, and there was like a little bit of a whistle on that one. So, there's that. Um, but that's already like... This movie was made by fans of the genre, so I guess Peter Jackson and uh, Fran Walsh, and I was looking at the writing credits as I said that, so I don't know why I said I guess, but um, they seem to be real fans, and they had uh, previously come off of a true crime story and stuff like that, so I think that they were kind of in the in the know in the zeitgeist there, and they cast D. Wallace, who I'm sure auditioned and did very well. But it's not for nothing that she's been in previous horror movies. Um, you know, maybe it's just agent things and typecasting, but it worked out. So um, Lucy goes to see D. Wallace and she's like, hey, what's going on? Abuse and all this stuff. And this is all like exposition, like these are the characters, right? Then we go to, um, we get a, an old newsreel clip kind of deal of Jake Busey. And Jake Busey looks positively maniacal in this black and white. Like, they um, they adjusted the black and white so that his eyes are, like, transparent. His hair is, like, transparent. He is just terrifying to look at. And he is literally a serial killer named Johnny Bartlett who killed, uh, I don't know, like, 11 or, or 12 uh, people in, like, a spree killing. He's not a serial killer. He's a spree killer. And there's a difference there. Spree killers... Uh, kind of fulfill their goals as quickly as possible, whereas serial killers are meditative and, you know, reintegrate into society and they have these uh, these pressures that build up, these obsessions or whatever the case is that 
give them the impulse to to kill. So that's the difference between a serial killer and a spree killer. And Jake Busey is a spree killer who kills 12 people in a hospital. And this is exposition via videotape. We also met, uh, a, so Frank crashed into a yard. And we met a character there whose name is Ray. And he is just kind of a douchebag about his yard. But he's like a meathead, but he cares about his cute little fence and his cute little gnomes. And it's a weird, um, it's a weird juxtaposition. And, and putting it in New England, or New England, in New Zealand, with um, these re this really uh, muted but rich color palette everything is is dark it's dark green dark red dark yellow uh but you know kind of high in the saturation it's really it's really an interesting movie in that it is very dark uh but there's some saturation there it's not just all muted colors and it gives it an interesting look and an interesting feel that feels like the frighteners would feel so this guy his name is ray and he's like giving you know frank a hard time and it turns out that Lucy is like going out with Ray or is Ray's husband or, or whatever the case is. I think they're going out. I don't think that they're like together, married, but they are together, together, that they live in the same house. And, you know, I should just look at the character's last name. That might be helpful. Ray Linsky. So they are married. So they're married and, you know, Michael J. Fox is like, hey, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll pay for all the damages. And he uh, he runs a scam on him, and he the, the, this is kind of how we learn about the scams is that he runs a scam on them to essentially get out of the debt and even take home like a tiny bit of money. Um, and we meet kind of Frank's ghost buddies that way. So he has uh, Cyrus, who's like a seventies uh, ghost black guy, play by. Shy McBride, who is wonderful, and Shy McBride is, you know, one of the characters that I think makes me absolutely, truly love uh, the Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, whoever produced and whoever directed, I can't think of it right now, Gone in 60 Seconds, with Nick Cage. Nick Cage, even. I did like a weird swallow thing, as I said, Nick Cage, and uh, it may have sounded like something else. Postnatal drip. Never leave home without it. Uh, anyway, I apologize. So, yeah, you know he gets um he gets some money out there, and he's like, "Oh, four fifty bucks. That's enough for your fence. Four hundred fifty dollars." And I'm like, "Wow, that is a ridiculously inexpensive lawn fence and gnome arrangement. Uh, I wish I had that tier of problem." But yeah, eventually Frank sees uh, indication of a real ass haunting. And eventually a legit-ass ghost shows up. And, you know, it's one of those things. Uh, oh, also, um, Jim Fife plays Stewart, I think. Stewart. Yeah, Stewart, the uh, other ghostly assistant uh, for Frank. And he's like a cool dude, but he's kind of like a, maybe like a 50s nerd or something like that. You know, there's a, a, another non-exposition exposition scene with all the ghost buddies in the house and they're like frank man you gotta hook me up and you know they're like uh he's like pushing stuff through them and they're like ow that hurt and getting slapped and 
stuff like that and uh another ghost uh you know judge or the judge played by john aston who was initially uh known for being gomez adams in the 1960s adams family series he um is wonderful by the way you know he's kind of putting in there that hey ghosts can get old and die and and things like that but they can still interact with each other they can shoot each other and you know it's like um here are all the rules to this ghost thing in the scene where we are just farting around with frank in frank's house so there's that and that was nice um and the judges is the main delivery of foreshadowing like oh death is here because you know michael michael j fox's character frank is like hey man some bad shit going on and he's like oh death is here and everybody's dying and it's all bad and all that stuff you know and, and frank meanwhile is running scams you know in that same scene he's like i need money to save this house that is unfinished which clearly he's holding on to for sentimental reasons because it is completely apart like there's no walls in some areas no ceilings like the cold water it's it's really rough and they do like a baby haunting which was really cute because it's like these aren't bad guys like they're like you know it's gray area it's kind of like a scam but they're really ghosts but they're not trying to hurt anybody so like who's really being harmed like shows up at a rich person's house and you know that's how he knows that he got blasted by the newspaper is um because that rich lady shows him the the front page kind of expose on him which i mean is not a plot hole so a plot hole would be like it's unexplainable it's just unlikely it's like a suspension of disbelief on that one and that's fine there are a few of those right but it's still you know it's a thing it could happen yeah people discover things all the time anyway eventually he ends up at a real newspaper uh at a real newspaper eventually he ends up at a real graveyard and i think that there is a, a peter jackson cameo in there where he's wearing like 95 like face rings and he's like get out man and he goes into a real ass graveyard and there's some real ass like spirits in there and one of them is actually the drill sergeant from full metal jacket so this is like another one of those uh homages or winks or nods to to films of, of who have come past films uh from times gone past films who have come before standing on the films of giants maybe even and uh he's i think he's actually the same exact character and i'm gonna i'm gonna do a click here just to confirm okay he's not the same exact character but he has a lot of the uh similar lines and is just generally a drill sergeant who is insulting and really fucking hardcore right so with that you know he he kicks frank like right out of the graveyard he kicks his ass like he pushes him in the dirt and he's like get out of here and he's got like a million guns and you know you're you're kind of noticing that um in certain terms like if a spirit is maybe strong enough or strong-willed enough they can interact with the physical world or physical people so you know it's one of those but um in this ray has died you know so he's trying to do right by ray um 
let's talk about villains. Obviously, um, we've talked about a couple already, but let's talk about FBI agent Milton Dammers. Milton Dammers is played by Jeffrey Combs, and Jeffrey Combs is a notorious horror movie actor known for Reanimator and uh, Castle Freak, I believe, among others. And he plays the weirdest, strangest motherfucking FBI agent in the world. And I don't know if this was a little bit of a gag on X-Files on top of everything. But it could have been. And um, it totally could have been. Now that I think about it. And this guy's been like undercover in cults and he's like, my body is a road map of pain and all these weird things. But eventually he just gets it in for for Frank Bannister. He's like, that motherfucker is guilty. Guilty until proven, no, just not even, you. there's no proving him not guilty. He's just guilty. So it's one of those things. And, uh. You know, there's a lot of uh, turns in the plot and stuff like that. Uh, you don't really meet this guy for a while, but uh, it's kind of a hero's journey structure for Frank, where he's like, he's, you know, doing okay, he's down, he looks like he's on the come up, he's way down, and you're like, oh, he can't get more down, he gets way more down. Um, Combs, however, plays his part perfectly. And, you know, we also learned that uh, in the Hero's Journey Week, we kind of learned that the hero isn't so great. That he was a drunk driver, and he was in an argument with his wife. That he did some selfish shit, and she got mad at him for it. And then they drove off in a car, and she died. But then we find out that the number 13 was carved in her head. And uh, this is clearly a nod to the... 13th victim of Johnny Bartlett, and up until now, Johnny Bartlett has been, well, I mean, up and to, up to now, and including until further after, and this is a spoiler, Johnny Bartlett has been portrayed as a classic, uh, Grim Reaper type of apparition. Appar apparition? Because to apparate would be to, like, teleport. So, apparition. So, Johnny Bartlett was involved in the killing of Frank's wife, and Johnny Bartlett has been putting these ghost numbers on people and, and killing again, essentially. Um, so, you know, there's you know some hijink scenes and some things and, and really a lot of uh, plot machinations to up the ante and up the stakes and, you know, get him in chases with the cops and, and stuff like that. The callback was, was good. You know, they're they're really giving you all the information that you need to know when you need to know it. So that's always good. That that is always like the hallmark of a of a well made movie. It's not just like, huh, what, huh? If you don't know something, you will find out like real, real soon. So eventually Lucy um is kind of brought right into the uh she's read into this world of ghosts, uh, you know, through Frank and they kind of come to the conclusion together that there is a ghost out there murdering people. You know, 
they double the stakes. Frank is going to go under into a state of suspended animation and, you know, she has to wake him up and the FBI guy's there and he's like, you're not going to wake him up. And meanwhile, Frank is trying to help Lucy and also protecting her from, you know, Jake Busey, which, I mean, I, I could see that. In in that whole, like, fray, um, Frank's ghost buddies, they, they get it. They get sliced up. And I don't know what that means for a ghost. They were already dead. Oh, oh, they were. No, they were already dead. So I don't know what that means for them. They are actually ghosts. So they do this out of body uh, thing, and it's a lot. It's super like Doctor Strange. So I think Doctor Strange was the homage to Frighteners. Um, definitely not the other way around. And, like, Jeffrey Combs, like, really, he, he gets to monologue a little bit. You sly dog, you caught me monologuing. Right? So that's, that's Jeff Combs. And uh, it's really good. He's, uh, as far as performances go, his is really, really good. Um, I think Shy McBride also does a really good job, too. But I like Shy McBride normally. Uh, I also like Jeff Combs normally, but, like, he's really committed to this so then um, you know we find out that Jeffrey Combs's character Milton was undercover with the Manson family in his first job in the FBI and then he went undercover in cults and all this bullshit and, and subsequently he's totally messed up you know they have this um, there's a lot of scenes with tension and the tension is earned it is earned. It's not gratuitous, I don't think. And I, I like that. I, I think it's a really, um, I think it's a pretty tight screenplay. Uh, the 14 minutes extra I said, maybe at the top of this, I think is exposition. Because I feel like I learned a little more about the characters this time than when I've previous, previously, previously seen it. I can't say previously. I have, like, a weird problem saying that word. Anyway. Anyway. Anyway, plot stuff, reveal, Patricia was, like, the mastermind. She wasn't, like, the, the, the patsy or the lackey. And she's been in it the whole time. So, it's one of those things. And, you know, more script plot machinations, machinations, and they end up in an abandoned hospital where all the murders actually took place. I guess it was nearby because New Zealand is small or the USA is small. So it must have been like Rhode Island where everything is on top of each other. So interestingly enough, in the final like uh, conflict scene, FBI agent Dammers like really uh, kind of postmodern breaks the movie rules down for you. And he's like, uh, you know, in world and fiction where he's like, oh, you need this urn to go to a sacred place to send it to the other side or whatever. And he's like, that's bullshit. You're going to die. And he shoots up Frank with a newsie and he dumps the, the ashes in the urn and, and lets Johnny Bartlett go, which is kind of like a delicious uh, writer's twist on, the, on that trope, you know? Which I guess in and of itself is now another trope. But I liked it. I liked that it was uh, another, like, you caught me monologuing moment. But Uzi? Really? Like, that was a bit much. And the fact that 
Frank wasn't just shred, more shredded than a julienne salad from an Uzi was was beyond me, but I could be service of the story, right? But yeah, you know, they 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 in this really um, tense climax sequence, they reveal a lot of the the real backstory and you know the stakes go up they go down they go up and you know frank dies but due to the rules of the world he stays in play and and things like that and uh eventually uh he ends up with lucy as we all knew he would and he's there they are kind of sitting outside uh frank's house right which is the physical manifestation of his regrets and and holding on to his wife and they're tearing it down and that means that he has let her go he saw her in heaven and she's like frank just go back and handle some shit and he's like thank you and he apologizes and she's like, not your fault this fucking ghost choked you out while you were driving it's not that you were drunk um and it was it was it was good it was good uh it was a good moment you know, how that kind of wraps up. I don't think the Ghost Buddies come back at all. I think they are absolutely gone because they were in heaven up there with him, which was interesting, seeing as how they've been scamming people, but sure. And then, um, you know, the sheriff really, uh, they, they put a fine point on it. He's like, well, it turns out that uh, you know, put Patty was involved with blah 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 blah, and and Frank Bannister says, "Hey, that sounds like you wrote me the perfect epilogue," which which it was. So it was one of those moments that was, it wasn't on the nose if you didn't understand what was happening. It's only on the nose because you are halfway intelligent, and I say halfway intelligent. It's not like rocket science. So yeah, I mean. That's the movie. I love the movie. I loved, uh, they use, uh, so Elfman, Danny Elfman does a score. And they use two pieces of music in the movie that I'm aware of. They, uh, at the end, over the credits, they play Don't Fear the Reaper by an Australian band called the Mutton Birds. And it is potentially the peak most 90s you could ever do Don't Fear the Reaper. I don't know what Australia was like in the 90s, honestly, but I feel like uh, maybe a very young Chris Hemsworth was, like, rocking out to that. Um, I know I would have been, but without the surfing and stuff. But it was extremely, extremely 90s. And they do um, a version of Superstar by Sonic Youth, which is actually... Creepy as fuck. It is creepy as shit. And I was expecting like the band to be typo negative or something, but no, it was just it was just Sonic Youth being Sonic Youth. And the score was was good. It was Elfman, but not too Elfman. I did hear a couple parts where the the little menacing kind of came up and it sounded almost a, a little bit like the prototype for Men in Black, you know. Things like that. Um as far as camera work and stuff like that, I felt like it really served the story. There was only one part where it got maybe a little blue. And I say blue to mean excessive. Um, and 
even then excessive is not the word that I mean, maybe extravagant. Um, and that was when Dammers is kind of, uh, interrogating Frank and things are going bad. You know, they, they hit you hard with the Dutch angles and stuff like that. And that's when they're bringing up, that's when they're kind of, uh, expositing about the wife and, and stuff like that. So I feel like everything was just kind of correct in this movie. I don't know if that's the best way to put it, but it's just like, as a whole, you look at it and you're like, all these pieces fit. There are a few plot points that are like, ah, you just gotta believe that that happened. Don't nitpick it. It's not a plot hole. It's just maybe unlikely, given what we know about these people and about the geography and things like that. But, um, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of nods to other movies um there was a part where skeletons kind of like jump out of graves not jump out but they're like forced from graves and it was very it was very raiders of the lost ark you know with the yelling skeleton in the beginning which skeletons don't yell but i've seen raiders of the lost ark maybe 50 times and not once ever was i ever concerned about the skeleton yelling i know that skeletons can't yell but there was a yell and it just made that scene that much more startling so yeah that was um that was frighteners uh there's a killer killer behind the scenes um section on this movie there's a killer behind the scenes featurette on this movie that i i only watched like a tiny part of because it's been just generally late at night when i've been watching these and and recording these so time is of the essence and i'm just trying to do it as quickly as possible in a way that is fine i guess would be the word for it in a way that is fine so yep thank you for for listening thank you for watching watching thank you for watching this movie with me or thank you for listening to me spoil it in a very bad way because i did not go over the plot point by point um but you should definitely watch these beforehand because it's good uh to do so it's nice to talk about to talk to people about something that they have input on or or decisions on or whatever the case may be just feelings on it's nice to talk to people that have feelings on things so uh be kind rewind and um uh, that's a movie i don't think i i don't think i can trademark that I I really have a problem with catchphrases, and uh, I need to work on that. I think I might need some help with uh, writing a catchphrase. Uh, if you have some, if you can offer some help writing a catchphrase, tweet at me at coolmarkd, cool with a C and Mark with a K. If uh, if you can help me do that, that would be awesome. Crowdsource it, right? Crowd credited, crowdsourced. But yeah, thanks.